You're listening to Forward, a podcast from faculty at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, hosted by Michelle Knight, Josh Jipp, Madison Pierce, and James Arcadi. Forward invites listeners into the mission of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School through conversations with faculty, staff, and guests. Hello, and welcome to Forward, a TED's faculty podcast. I'm Michelle Knight. And I'm Josh Jipp. And we are your hosts today. We've got the pleasure of interviewing uh, one of our own, Madison Pierce, the brilliant and delightful uh, assistant professor of New Testament here at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Today, we're going to chat with her specifically about her upcoming book with Cambridge University Press entitled Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Hey, Madison. Great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be here. How do you think it's going to feel to be the one that's receiving the questions instead of the one asking the questions? Uh, terrifying. Thanks. Terrifying. Okay, good. Because mm-hmm. Michelle and I have prepared mm-hmm. some really difficult ones for you today and uh, Super looking forward hard. to seeing how you answer these. Yeah. Great. Be great. <laughs> hey, no, in all seriousness, um, I was thinking it'd be really interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about your vocational journey that uh, that landed you at at TED's. In particular, what were some of the things that got you excited in theological education, study of the New Testament, and so forth? Yeah, um, I guess my vocation starts when I was, or my sense of vocation kind of started when I was about 14. Um, I was leading small groups and involved in leadership in our youth group. I had really only become a believer like within the last year. Um, but in that time, I really fell in love with teaching and was starting to enjoy um, helping people or just explaining things to people. And um, as I was thinking through what God kind of had in store for me for the rest of my life, I thought I thought that would probably be a part of it. Um, but I always connected that with writing. Um, I don't, I never, I don't remember ever thinking, you know, I love to write, I'm going to be a writer, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I remember articulating at that same time, like, not just I'm going to be a teacher, but I'm going to be a theologian. Um, and so, uh, there, that was when I was about 14. I had a slight detour. There was about a like five year, um, blip on the radar where I was exploring some other things for some various reasons. If y'all want to talk about that. Um, but when I was 19, um, I switched my major from music to Christian studies and, uh, sat down in a theology of Paul class and started reading a bit of, uh, Jimmy Dunn. And I knew I was exactly where I needed to be. And within the, you know, by the end of that semester, um, was looking toward going to seminary um, and then getting a PhD and going on to teach. So that's great. Cool. Um, during that five year hiatus, was it you were probably pursuing becoming a stand up comedian? <laughs> I was. No, yes, no, no Josh, that was her. That was her circus face. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> um, no. I well, I did actually. Um, there was a time period where I did consider whether I had what it took to be a Christian comedian. I don't think I've ever told you that. But you, you've never told me. I've just seen you practice some of the what? jokes in your office at times when you didn't think I was I was peeking through the window. I'm so sorry. Oh, this is mind so blowing. Can you talk to me about how far into your Christian journey you were when you thought, "I know my Christianity requires." comedic timing and professional attention what what did that what how did that happen well as you know i'm very funny 
And sure. that's an important part of my identity. We discussed this in the first episode of this yeah. season. Funniest person in that house, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's It's correct. like Madison, then Isla, <laughs> then Curtis. Maybe Isabel, Izzy, then Curtis. the yes. dog, and yes. then yeah, Curtis. Exactly. Um, sure. So, uh, so I... Um, I don't even know if I want to tell you all this. So, okay. Oh, I don't know if y'all are familiar with um, like Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. Mm-hmm. But I was like yes. super into SNL at this time. And um, like that was one of my favorite segments. I w- and at that time it was like, you know, download a bunch of uh, these clips on like Napster and stuff or like LimeWire. Um, anyway, so I like watch all these. And um, I so I actually wrote my own version of deep thoughts and it was like 20 pages and some of them were like legit riffs on jack handy and then some were like my own kind of thing and uh people enjoyed them i i can say with some confidence uh they are somewhere i i don't have them like well i mean i don't anymore pull them out on a daily basis to encourage myself about how funny i am but Yeah. yeah yeah they're around you know that honestly like it's pretty funny, but it really doesn't surprise me too much. But anyway, back to back. Let's let's try to stay on on topic a little bit better here, for uh, if we can. No, I'm sure. sorry. Um, yeah. Back to your yeah. It's your fault. <laughs> it's it's either, it's it's probably Michelle's actually. Um, yeah. 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 You're right. So you um, maybe let's skip a little bit ahead into um, you did your MDiv at TEDS and then you did your PhD in uh, the UK in Durham. <laughs> What were some of your thought processes um, in terms of why did you uh, why did you go overseas instead of stay, stay in the United States? Why um, why not an evangelical institution? Do you want to give us a little bit of a uh, window into your thinking and how it formed you as well? Yeah. Well, when I was finishing up my MDiv and starting to look around, um, I I felt ready to write, um, whether that was naive or not. I felt like I'm ready to do some independent work, and I really don't want to do another you know few years of coursework. I knew that the UK would give me that opportunity, and I also I was really eager to have some different experiences in terms of culture and all of that. Of course, I understand that the UK is by no means like the most distinct culture from. Uh, the U.S., but it certainly has its charm. Um, and I also, I mean, I I did consider staying in the U.S. and looked at various programs, um, but I was fairly sure that I didn't want to be at an evangelical institution. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting a PhD at an evangelical institution. In fact, I'm supervised PhD students at an evangelical institution. Um, But I personally felt like I needed um, the opportunity to stretch out a little bit and to explore various parts of my faith, um, to to continue to be in conversation with people outside of evangelicalism. And um, the UK offered me that opportunity. Staying in the US where um, I I do feel like things are more polarized, uh, not just in theology. Um, I, you know, I felt like I had an opportunity to be at an evangelical institution or to be at an institution that was antagonistic. And going to the UK, especially going to Durham, um, I had the opportunity to be in a public university, but still to be in an environment that was um, loosely confessional or at least hospitable towards um a broader theological perspective and and I'm really grateful to say that um my hope in that regard was was um 
really well-founded. I mean, uh, Durham offered all those things and um, in the shadow of the cathedral um, certainly allowed me to, um, to grow my faith and to uh, connect with God in a new way. That's great. Very cool. Madison, I'm glad you shared that because I think our students are pretty consistently trying to discern like what their next steps are. And I know I field questions a lot and I've heard Josh talk about fielding these questions too. Students look at their faculty and they see that they're from a lot of different institutions, some confessional, some not, some evangelical, some not, some in the U.S., some not. And so I think it's really helpful when we're talking through our journey kind of to uh, explore a little bit um, what that looks like uh, and why we made those choices as we have. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. I um one one thing to pop in when I was looking at programs I found that everybody who gave me advice advised me to do what they did and it's really important to me yeah. that I don't do that although I certainly I mean most people ask me what was your experience like at Durham and I say if right. you know if you feel led in that direction do it. It would, you know, I hope you would be as um as blessed as I was. But I think wherever you end up going, you should go uh where you're going to flourish as a scholar and as an individual. Yeah, that's a great point and something we should all keep in mind as faculty advisors too. Sure. Yes, I can think of numerous instances where I've done the exact same thing. And only later on did I realize uh, there might be other reasons for advising people to think differently than doing what I did. So... You're obviously mature beyond your years, Madison, to see that so early on. Well, thank you, Josh. So you mature. That's what people know about maturity. What <laughs> are um, one of the fun things about uh, having Michelle and I um, interview you, Madison, is that it gives me an opportunity to reflect upon, or maybe not. I won't do the reflecting, but ask the two of you, mm. perhaps, to reflect a little bit upon your friendship. I can remember. Uh, years ago when I was uh, um, maybe my first or second year uh, as a faculty member at TEDS and seeing the two of you bouncing up and down the halls, doing your teaching. And uh, <laughs> you you were pretty energetic. <laughs> You're still pretty energetic, the two of you. Um, I feel like, is that sexist or something? I don't bouncing? know. Did we have pigtails on? <laughs> no, but you were... Uh, <laughs> You were you were energetic, and you still are. Yeah, that's fair. We'll take anyway, it. Um, I don't know what my question is here, but uh, I think it'd be fun to hear a little bit about how your friendship with Michelle started. You know, maybe maybe some of the ways that it's changed you, or things that um, ways in which the two of you have uh, mutually encouraged each other. Um, you want to give a little uh, insight for our listeners into your friendship? Sure. Um, I think. This may actually have been maybe the second time that I stepped foot on Trinity's campus. I mean, the first time was for um, a campus visit like in August of 2009. And then, oh, I usually don't tell my students when I was a, stu a student. I just talk about like in the distant past. Um, anyways, at some point in the past, um, I visited campus. And then the next January um, had a proficiency exam for Greek. And I now know that Michelle Knight was in this very room. This was 10 years ago, January. So and um, so we didn't actually connect at that point. But um, maybe a week or so later, we were at some kind of orientation. And I ended up sitting by um, one of the few women in the room, maybe the only other woman in the room. And um, 
we were just like working through stuff and ended up like kind of chit-chatting about what we were doing and all of that. And um, the skipping ahead a little bit, Michelle may want to double back to that experience. Um, But we ended up in the same Greek class because we did both pass that proficiency exam. And we were in um, Grant Osborne's or Dr. O, as we referred to him uh, in his exegesis class, which was a wonderful blessing to me. That's so cool. It was such a neat time. I'd like to point out two things that Madison didn't share. First of all, the reason that we're sure we were in that proficiency exam together is that I remember very distinctly looking up on like the, I don't know, midway point of my proficiency exam and noticing somebody finishing and turning their exam in and being like, who is this crazy person? And that was Madison. Second of all, uh, when we were sitting next to each other during this event she was talking about, I'd like to point out that the person in the front of the room was giving us strict instructions on what to do next and how to do things. And I was watching this individual next to me kind of scurry ahead, her brows furrowed, uh, 10 steps ahead of whatever was happening and what we were being instructed. <laughs> to do. She was trying to register for classes that had yet to be unlocked because we hadn't taken the proficiency exam, but she was like bound and determined to make it happen. <laughs> it was the most Madison moment now looking back that I could have ever hoped for. Uh, so yeah, it's easy. It, to they were both really on brand. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was perfect. Where would you, what would you guys say is uh, one of your strongest, uh, closest similarities and biggest differences in terms of I don't know. It could be anything. Personality or likes, um, dislikes. We have a lot of similar interests. Um, I mean, obviously, I, mean, I think one of the things that bonded us quickly is that we both love tech. Um, and mm-hmm. I think we do Truth. both have like a desire for efficiency and proficiency. Um, but uh, also that we both. That's why I often I mean, feel so left out in this uh, triumvirate yeah. today. Especially Sorry, the proficiency Josh. part. Sorry. Good. Good. You're we'll so bring you along, Josh, brother. Don't worry. Um, but then <laughs> we we also um, we were in a very small group of people at TEDS at that time that wanted to go into academia when we finished. Yeah. And so the fact that we both wanted to be professors when we grew up, and also that we were female. I mean, I think that that. Um, we were brought together. So I I would say that that's definitely like some of the things that we have in common. Um, Michelle, do you want to talk about some of the things that we have, (laughs) that we, (laughs) some of the ways that we're different? Yeah. I feel like Michelle has a more acute awareness of this. (laughs) I don't know. Well, for example, Madison and I are both J's. We both, well, actually, Madison is the one who knows all about not only Enneagram, but uh, what is that Myers again? Briggs. The four letters. Thank Myers you. Briggs. Myers-Briggs. So she could probably speak more uh, 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 intelligently to that specifically. But we both uh, make decisions. We both get things done. We both logically kind of calculate what we're going to do next. And once we've decided to do it, we do it. But like, for example, um, Madison is one of the most impulsive Jays I've ever met in my life. And she like decides what she's going to do. She's doing it. And she's like on, she's just like taking care of business. She's like halfway down the street. I will mull over a decision for half a day to like make sure that it's absolutely the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one kind of acute difference that I think we've noticed in our life recently. Um, like when I bought my house on the internet. Madison literally bought her house on the internet. My husband and I looked at 47 houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
as an example. Got it. Yeah. Um, follow up. Madison. Um, <clears throat> is a lot more introspective than I am. So Madison is very aware of kind of how she's processing in the world and how she's interacting with the world. She's very sensitive to the emotional state of other people around her. I, as much as I have some sort of emotional intelligence and those sorts of things, um, I tend to block out emotion and kind of stick it on a shelf and get stuff done. Uh, So we each kind of handle our emotions and our surroundings and the things that stress us out in different ways. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of more... Uh, comedic examples. Madison, do you have any? Michelle loves terrible sci-fi. I only like great sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> I do love terrible ba- sci-fi. Like like all like of her, the um... really bad sci-fi. I love it. <laughs> I love feel-good TV. I want TV to be the best part of my day, not because it's quality, but because it's happy. Because it makes you feel good. I also... Yes. You don't need dark and complicated. and No. I want Captain America. Madison likes like the dark DC comic stuff. It's really creepy. I'm not into it. She also likes intelligent comedy. No time for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I I know she also likes non-intelligent comedy as well. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've been giving Josh some movie recommendations. So, yeah, yeah, I, I so have it on good authority. It's not all intelligent. That's all right. Um, well, thanks for the uh, the little insight, little window into the friendship of the two of sure, you. Sure. Um, you could also have added another similarity is that you probably just dominated the MDiv program while you were at TED's, right? There's no question about the fact that we dominated pretty much everything we did at TEDS. Everything. I mean, Not just that MDiv program, but I'm everything. just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. But with um, our powers combined, we were set up well to yeah. succeed. Here's another difference. I would never say that. But I welcome Michelle I was saying being it on our behalf. And humorous. I was being it. funny. <laughs> I was I think everybody knows I was being funny. Yeah, we do. We do. Thank you. Oh yeah. Uh, all right, let's, let's turn to your class. recent book, Madison. Um, it was a really, um, it was a f- great experience for me. Um, in terms of reading experiences, go to have a chance to prep for the podcast by reading your forthcoming book, Divine Discourse and the Epistle to the Hebrews. It's coming out um, later this summer with Cambridge University Press. And um, to all of our listeners, you won't be surprised. It's a stellar example of combining close so exegetical argument with, uh, with also, also robust theology. So, um, so Madison, um, a lot of us, uh, a lot of readers of Hebrews have noticed, obviously, that speech and speaking um, is a huge part of the book. How did you take that theme, but then move it forward? I um, I think so. <laughs> one of the interesting things about my project is I feel like um, I just kind of looked at the text, and I feel like anybody else could make a lot of the same observations that I did by looking at it. Um, but you know, without kind of attending to this particular feature, they just didn't see these things. But um, I've had a few people say like, "Wow, once you see that, you can't unsee it." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and what they saw was, was patterns in the discourse, um, that first of all, you know, speech is not only prevalent, but it's clearly, um, 
patterned. And so, you know, first the father speaks to the son, then mm-hmm. the son speaks to the father, then the spirit speaks to the community. And that's in the first section of Hebrews. A lot of Hebrew scholars divide Hebrews into three sections. And um, and so in that first major section, um, that happens. And lo and behold, when we transition into the second section of Hebrews, it happens again. Mm-hmm. Um, the third section doesn't. Um, but there are lots of uh, distinctives of the third section of Hebrews. Um, for example, the Son and the Spirit are not really mentioned with as great a frequency in general in that third section. Um, the priesthood of Christ is a more minimal uh, part of, of that uh, section, et cetera, et cetera. So there are some th- significant variations, even though God does continue to speak there. So, um, well, and, and one other thing, there's only three speakers in Hebrews. Father, Son, and Spirit, um, and they speak into this in this really distinctive way. And so, um, these characters that the author portrays as God um, mm-hmm. have a distinct function in in the world. So, now is Scripture considered a speaker in the Book of Hebrews? You said there's only three. Would would where does Scripture play a role? Well, scripture, there's only one place where potentially um, scripture speaks, but it's really, there's an exhortation that addresses you as sons um, or as, uh, you know, children in uh, in mm-hmm. chapter 12. A lot of people um, just kind of um, go, move beyond that introductory formula and assume that it's actually uh, Hatheos or the father speaking, um, but it literally is the exhortation that addresses you and um whether i i think yeah i have some some really preliminary thoughts about what's going on there but i don't necessarily think that that's a speaker i think that it's um more uh, an appeal to this kind of um to the proverb or to the writings in some Uh way which would of course be exceptional in hebrews okay um could you Give us, give us a, an example or two, a specific example of where the Father and the Son, or the Spirit, I guess, but maybe where the Father and Son are speaking to each other. Um, yeah, um, so in Hebrews 1, the opening uh, series of quotations, the seven quotations, um, various ones of those are spoken to the Son. So, to whom among the angels did God ever say, you are my Son, today I've begotten you? Even though it doesn't say, God said to the Son, it's clear by the way that He introduces that is you know, that he's saying, he doesn't say this to angels, he says this to the Son that he's introduced in 1, 1 to 4. Um, and then, you know, and a few others throughout, um, you are from the beginning, O Lord. Um, your throne, O God, is forever. I'm moving out of order a little bit. And then finally, this climaxes in the... Um, um, Goodness, I'm for, suddenly I'm forgetting the words of uh, Psalm 110.1, the most frequently quoted <laughs> text in the New Testament. But Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until you're an, uh, until I make your enemies a footstool. Um, so that's the last quotation there. He doesn't actually include the Lord said to my Lord part, but I had to get into it. Um, so that's the father to the son in chapter one. Um, in chapter two, um, it may or may not be understood as a response, but it's still certainly the son speaking to the father um, where he says, or the author introduces this as he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He says, 
um, I will proclaim your name, you know, yours, the Father's name, uh, to my brother, brothers and sisters in the midst of the assembly. I will sing your praise. I will put my trust in him. Here I am in the children God has given me. And those are, you know, Psalm 22 and then Isaiah 8 and mm-hmm. Isaiah 8 again. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that that's that, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's helpful. So Madison, I feel like because of this project in particular, and this is definitely an Old Testament person posing a question here, when you're constantly looking at the way that these quotations are adapted, you are also uh, working in um, kind of defining the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, at least uh, the way that it is perceived by the author of Hebrews. Uh, So can you speak a little bit to the way that you're... uh, the way that your research has influenced the way that you would describe uh, the relationship between the Testaments as we kind of encounter them today? Um, I think my work in Hebrews has um, led me to emphasize continuity a lot more. Um, I mean, that's actually one of the reasons that I began working on Hebrews is I felt like my tradition um, didn't place a lot of stock in the Old Testament and kind of talked about it, it um, slash the law as something that was temporary, um, you know, um, bad um, kind of a blip on the historical radar or, you know, blip in salvation history or whatever, temporary, this and that, which some of those things are appropriate and some are problematic. Um, and when I got to Hebrews um, in undergrad, I was taking a class on Hebrews and general epistles with Joey Dodson. Um, almost immediately, I mean, the series of quotations that I was just uh, pulling from, um, realizing that uh, the author of Hebrews um, thought that the Old Testament was pretty pretty important. And, um, you know, going along, it, it led me to understand that without Scripture, without God's message to His people um, throughout the generations, there's no way we can understand who Jesus is. So, um, I, I tell my students that um, Apollos, um, who may or may not be the author of Hebrews, um, his experience in, in Acts 18 um, where Prisca and Aquila kind of um, show him how Scripture points to Jesus, um, or sorry, that um, that Jesus is in, no, Jesus is the Messiah. Sorry, I'm getting all mixed up. Um, that I kind of had the opposite experience. Like, I knew who Jesus was, but I didn't understand what Scripture said about him. And so, um, that was really helpful for me. So, yeah, continuity is really important. And um, especially in Hebrews, I mean, um, in most instances, it's pretty clear why the author is picking up on a particular quotation. And so, even though some people say, eh, he was just reading Christologically, whatever that means, um, there actually is something in the grammar um, or something in the interpretive tradition that leads um, him and other early Christian interpreters to read the text in the way that they have. And so it just helps me to see continuity um, with the way that we understand the text, with um, between early Christian, early Jewish interpreters, and and uh, in various other ways as well. Yeah. Can I pick up on something you said there? I'm sorry, Josh. Feel free to cut in if if you want to. Um, you kind of uh, contrasted this approach with kind of a Christological reading. Can you tease out what the difference is between the two? Perhaps using an example. Well, I don't. I think that what the author of Hebrews is doing is a Christological reading. I mean, he's reading these texts in light of the Messiah. Um, I'm more um, pushing against a kind of common use of the word Christological as though, uh, one, that's some kind of 
method. And two is though it describes an author um, just kind of, uh, you know, like picking up his Bible. This is, of course, anachronistic. Um, picking up his Bible and uh, saying, let me find something about Jesus and like, you know, just okay. opening up. It's more that like scripture was in their hearts and was in their communities. And together they reasoned um, how it, it pointed forward to the Messiah. Or, you know, they knew those things and then they they read these texts or presented these texts in new ways. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, no, it does. That's helpful. I want to, um, this is helpful. I want to um, keep going a little bit further in terms of trying to understand things that the author says um, and it, how it relates to the Old Testament and w- what we might call like the literal sense or something along those lines. So in Hebrews 1, when it talks about, you know, when the author is saying, um, uh, I think it's verse 8, right, where he's quoting from Psalm 45 in the Masoretic text, right? And he says, but to you, God, you know, he, he to the Son, he says, what is it about, oh God, your throne is a throne that lasts forever and so on and so forth. Does the author of Hebrews think that Psalm 45 has a relationship to the Davidic king? Uh, the same thing with Psalm 2, the same thing with Psalm one, 110, um, or are these just like prophetic words that are spoken to the son? Does that make sense what I'm asking there? Basically, the the relationship between something like a historical you know, um, referent literal sense with these Davidic kings. And then, uh, from the author's standpoint, uh, the, the son of God, how, how those two relate is what I'm after. Well, the, the method that the author of Hebrews is using, um, seems to, uh, uh, kind of place, um, or to try to resolve tension in earlier ways that the text is being read. Um, so, and uh, a more classic example or a more fleshed out example um, would be a similar reading strategy that we find in the readings of Psalm 110 in the Synoptics. Um, you know, David calls him uh, Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Lord right. said to my Lord. Um, David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? And so clearly, Jesus is pointing out that you understand this text in light of the Davidic heir, but it's not appropriate for David to refer to that person as Lord. So something else is going on here. It doesn't necessarily diminish the the um, possibility of a Davidic heir being the uh-huh. referent, but it has to be a special kind of Davidic heir. I mean, I, I think that's what what ha- what needs to happen there. Um, so I think something similar is happening happening in Hebrews, where the author has said it's almost like you have heard it said, but I say to you, or you have interpreted it this way, but I interpret it you know, in a more clear way. Um, so in terms of those texts, he never says this was never about David mm-hmm. or this was never about the Davidic king. Instead, mm-hmm. he says it's clearly about the son. And I think that we get clues in various places as to the, again, the kind of continuity or discontinuity with those readings. Okay. Um, and But in a lot of places, it, that there's not a, a lot of clarity there. Yeah. Okay. No, that's helpful. Um, what, as I said a few minutes ago, one of the things I really um, appreciate about your your book is the way that it does really have you know strong um, exegetical historical work, but yeah. it's also working towards a 
um, really a, a, a robust theological claim as well. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear some of your reflections, uh, the, maybe theological reflections on what you think are some of the implications of your work as it pertains to to the Trinity or, or, or anything else perhaps related to the church. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a structure of Hebrews that um, points forward or, or that um, that when we look forward to later texts and see this is how people understood the relationship among Father, Son, and Spirit, that we see clues that maybe the author of Hebrews conceived of of God in this way as well. Um, even some of what I was saying about the kind of distinctiveness of the speakers, the Father, Son, and Spirit are the mm-hmm. ones who speak in a kind of timeless way in Hebrews, um, but mm-hmm. they all have their own kind of distinctive function within the discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, the Father primarily commends the Son. He sets him up. I mean, he does also institute the new covenant, but it's a new covenant of which the Son is a mediator. Mm-hmm. Um so he has a function in the text. The son has a function also, which is to kind of acknowledge his mission and to actually commend the father in a way that, you know, I will put my trust in him. Um, I've come to do your will to say that, like, I am faithful to you. And he models that not only in the quotations, but in various other, um, you know, in the way that the author uh, uh, introduces his argument in other places as well. And then the Spirit commends the community because the Father and Son speak to each other and we get to overhear it. But the Spirit is the one that addresses us directly. And so the Spirit is the one who really responds on behalf of of the Father and the Son with humanity. And I do, um, in the book, draw some parallels there with um, the so-called um, like unforgivable sin. I think something similar is happening with um, the way that the Spirit is portrayed there, that He's the yeah, one right. that kind of responds on behalf mm-hmm. of the, the Son, um, which I think is drawn from Isaiah 63 uh, while we're on the subject. But... Cool. Um, <laughs> So yeah, they they have a function, um, but they are the only ones that are appropriately or that are um, speakers um, mm-hmm. up until the very end. Um, it's actually the case. Um, this is moving a little bit beyond your question, but just kind of a fun fact. Um, there is one exception to the only God speaks in Hebrews. Um, the very last speaker in Hebrews is actually us. Um, with confidence, we say. So, are there, um, what are the implications of that? Is it that we learn how to hear and then we we speak, or how? What what are, yeah? What what are some of the implications of that? I mean, it seems like a really interesting insight. Yeah, um, I I do. I think that um, the author has been modeling speech for mm-hmm. us uh, via God, um, but this is an opportunity we've been hearing and hearing and hearing, um, and we've you know, there's been kind of this tension throughout Hebrews, like, will the people continue? Will they be faithful? Will they, will they not? Um, and so here, at least, um, we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Mm-hmm. And so, at least in this instance, um, our response is to be faithful, uh, to hear what has been said to us and to move forward appropriately. Oh, that's great. 
That's really good. That's wonderful. So Madison, obviously, uh, well, I hope uh, we're not going to see people who listen to this podcast or engage your work uh, go and start talking about um, prosopological exegesis from the pulpit. Um, but uh, could you summarize for us two or three ways you feel like your research should change um, or at least affect or strengthen uh, the way that we teach and preach about the book of Hebrews? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, uh, Michelle is alluding to the method that I think is at work here. We I don't think we've named it up to this point, but I've been talking about it. So I think that the author of Hebrews is taking um, passages from Scripture and is identifying a new character within them. It's typically Jesus, but um, in the examples that I was just giving, you know, the Spirit, for example, is identified as well. Um, and even, yeah, so I'll stop there um, and not give too many examples. But um, <laughs> so different new characters are introduced here. Um, prospological exegesis is a terrifying phrase. Um, yes, do not use it from the pulpit um, or Greek and Hebrew or whatever. Um, be, be generous <laughs> with your congregations. Um, but what I hope people see is, one, that the author of Hebrews is not a capricious reader of Scripture. Um, this is something that since George George Caird wrote, who's my um, you know, uh, grandfather in uh, biblical studies, he, he uh, was the doctoral um, advisor for my doctoral advisor. So, uh, it's all in the family. Um, but he's the one that said Hebrews is reading carefully and that his exegetical method is not, um, he says fantastic, although I, I use fantastic in a rather positive way. Um, he's using it in a more classical sense, um, that he's careful. And so that's something that I want to bring out, not just with Hebrews, but with all of our New Testament interpreters. Again, that they're attending to the grammar and attending to the ins- the circumstances within which they're operating. Um, I think that <laughs> I think that helps us to understand that um, these men were not inspired in a vacuum. Um, not only were they they readers of texts, but they also, I mean, God providentially like set up this moment for them um, in which they were operating. Um, they didn't tuck themselves away in a room and only only uh, receive from God. But as you know, our doctrine of inspiration insists they were divine divine and human authorship is important. And so the exact moment within which they were writing um, is important, not not only for us, like in what they, what they were able to pass on, but for those first communities that received what they were saying. Um, if these methods weren't operative, if these interpretive traditions weren't already present, then these arguments that the author of Hebrews is making are going to be nonsensical. Um, yeah. But he is reading in a really, um, he's making a lot of assumptions when he reads. Um, to read these texts in light of Jesus to uh, function in this way. And so I think that means that this is how people read texts at that time. Yeah, that's super helpful. That's well said. It sounds like you should um, you should teach a class on this. Do you ever have you ever oh my thought gosh, of that? Yes. I have. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently teaching a use of scripture and scripture class, which is a great joy to me. I'm, it's still something that I'm thinking through. Um, that I've got lots of work to do. Uh, um, you know, early on in the class, students said, um, you should write a book about this. And um, I told them that it's uh, a long way down the road um, mm-hmm. because I, I have some strong opinions about it, but I still want to uh, to flesh them out a little bit more. Yeah, so, I can see yeah. the some of the wisdom of that too in terms of a book that um, evolves out of your ability to keep, keep 
keep working um, with your method through a variety of texts. So I hope yeah, you take up the definitely. students on that at some point, though. Thanks, Thank Josh. Um, <laughs> one more question um, related to kind of um, write, writing and church. And you had said, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, even back, I think, when you were 14 or whatever, that you had, you know, conceived of yourself one day of being a writer. Do you, I'm just wondering, how do you find a research topic or how do you kind of land on what you want to write on? Is it a problem in the text? Is it, hey, the church really needs to know this? Or, I, I, you know, any, any, I know you're still relatively um, young, although you're you. getting older every day. <laughs> um, but how, how so far have you kind of, um, yeah, just put thought into how you pick a writing project? Well, um, I mean, some writing projects have found me, um, you know, people have approached me to write things. I'm trying to be more selective about those now um, and really to allow myself to kind of steer what I'm doing. Um, and with that, I mean, really, it's been curiosity. Um, you know, things have kind of welled up in me. Obviously, this comes out of doctoral research, which was just a question that kept kind of expanding. Um, but with later projects, uh, things that I have kind of on the horizon, um, it's really a lot of times has been an area that I feel like is a weakness of, in my own understanding. So, for example, um, I, you know, the question that you asked about how these quotations relate to David um, or to interpretations about David, um, that questions like that are why I'm writing a book about messiah language in hebrews um i need to think about that more and um and i i want to be able to approach it in a more systematic way and so i've got a question to answer might as well write a book about it mm -hmm. yeah that's great i love that well madison it's been a true joy to have you on the podcast today obviously you're on the podcast a lot but for us to be able to kind of toss you on the other side of the table and uh the virtual table and ask you some questions has been really fun especially because uh there's so much that we we talk about on the podcast, like food and age and all sorts of other silly things. It's fun to hear you talk about your passions and um, your writing and everything. So thank you for joining us today. Mm -hmm. It was, it was great to have you on here. Yeah. Thank you, Madison. Thanks, y'all. And that's just the forward. If you enjoyed what Dr. Madison Pierce had to say today, watch for her forthcoming book, uh, Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews, coming out later this year with Cambridge University Press. It's been a privilege to have our friend and our co-host on the podcast today. We want to say thank you to her, as well as to our producer, uh, our super talented producer, Curtis Pierce. We also want to take a moment to thank the Center for Transformational Churches, which has generously helped to, uh, to sponsor our podcast. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, I'm Michelle Knight. And I'm Josh Chip. Thank you, and have a great day. Forward is a podcast hosted by faculty at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. You can subscribe to our newest episodes on your preferred podcast app or at forwardpodcast.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Forward Podcast to get updates and additional links to content. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is located 25 miles north of Chicago, with extension sites across the country and online. Trinity educates men and women to engage in God's redemptive work in the world by cultivating academic excellence, Christian faithfulness, and lifelong learning. You can find more information at teds.edu.